This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. In a series called Romans, it's a book that's the oldest surviving letter from the ancient world. It's written in AD 57 by a guy called Paul who was in Corinth, which is in Greece, and he's never been to Rome, and he's writing it to the people in Rome. And so buckle up, I'm going to give you uh, what we've done so far in four or five hours, You're going to, four or five sermons, you're going to get in uh, about 30 seconds. Okay, so where we go. So Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul starts off by saying, this is the gospel of God. The gospel of God is Jesus is Lord. Not Nero, uh, not the Roman Empire. Jesus is Lord, and God has demonstrated it by raising him from the dead. Something where Caesar imposes his power on people, God's power has raised Jesus from the dead. And we sang about that. So that's what he started. So he said, this is my gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it. Even though people mock it, I'm not ashamed of it. Then we looked at how Roman culture has suppressed the truth about God that it's rotten to the core. It's like a a tree that's going to fall down. It's rotten to the core. It looks okay on the outside, grand buildings, grand stuff, but it's actually warped, it's fallen, it's broken. And that brokenness uh, shows itself in arrogance, in pride, in warped sexual practices. And and so Paul says, uh, God's judgment is coming on you. He says it's coming on you now by letting you just do what you want to do, but it's also coming in the future. And then you can the Jews in the crowd are all saying, great, good job, you need to give those sinners, uh, 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 those homosexuals, whatever, you give them a hard time, and then uh, Paul turns it round on them and says, you self-righteous Jews, you say one thing but you do the other. You preach, the, you say that you keep the law but actually you break it in secret. So you're a whole bunch of hypocrites. So Paul is really loaded on the bad news. And he ends the bad news by saying to, the, to everybody who's listening and to us, there's no one right with God, no one righteous, no, not one. So you're all like, oh, this is a great letter. I may as well pack in here. But actually there's a great little verse, a little couple of words in the middle of, um, that we heard from last week in Romans uh, 3, 20, uh, 21. It says, but now. Paul's been desperate to get to his good news, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's Jesus Christ has been revealed. The free gift of Jesus has come and his believing in his death and resurrection has suddenly mean that actually you'll be counted righteous for free. They're all scratching their heads and thinking, how can this possibly work? And they said, well, let me give you an example from uh, the founder of the Jewish nation, uh, Abraham. That's how he believed. He, could, he was looking to have a kid. He couldn't do it. It was impossible. God had promised him amazing things. He couldn't do it. He was going to have a kid. And he believed God. And in the same way, you, who are facing an impossible situation because you're all stuck in your sin and you can't get out, you're facing an impossible situation. But just like Abraham believed God and God made him righteous, that's how you become a Christian. Boom. You see, why did we just take three weeks? We could have done that really quick. I expected a brief round of applause for that, but hey, never mind. No, no, don't. Okay, so we're going to pick up at Romans 5. The readings are long. Let me just explain why we're reading the whole thing. It's, Paul says uh, uh, that do not give up, in one of his letters says, don't give up the public reading of Scripture. Because the danger is that I'll just preach on what I want, 
And what we want to do is we want to preach on what's in the Bible, what Paul wants. So we're going to read this out. So it's a long reading, so it'll come up on the screen, but, um, and Andy's going to read it. I've paraphrased a few words, so if you, it doesn't say it in your Bible, I hope I've been honest to the text, and you can get me afterwards. Okay, Romans chapter 4, verse 24. To us, God will credit righteousness, who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the, the, the disobedience of one, uh, the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigning in death, so also great, uh, grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm glad I'm not doing the readings. Paul's complicated with his multi-phrase sentences. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's 
just enthusiasm here as he talks about how brilliant it is uh, to be made right with God. And Lord, I pray that we'd catch that same enthusiasm this morning, but more than that, you'd show us that we need to be uh, receive your love and live passionately for you in this uh, time we come. So Lord, I just pray, stir us up, send us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the world is full of irreconcilable differences. Um, here's two. The one on the right is meaningful, purposeful, shocking, depressing. Al, uh, Assad, President Assad and Syrian rebels, in inverted commas, or terrorists as he calls them. Um, you know, that, in one sense, they've got an irreconcilable difference. You know, they can't sort it out. You know, they, it seems like who's going to come and unravel that? You can find irreconcilable differences in Jerusalem between Jews and Muslims. You can find irreconcilable differences in the ghettos of the United States between white police officers and black people. You can find irreconcilable differences between people who voted for Brexit and immigrants. You can find irreconcilable differences or seeming irreconcilable differences everywhere. So when Angelita and Brad's irreconcilable difference hit the newspaper, a lot of people said, well, how incredibly trivial. Why is people giving this any airtime? And in one sense, you can say, I totally understand that. But if you've experienced the pain of divorce, if you've uh, suffered the hurt of a long-time break in relationship, if you've had family or friends who refuse to be in the same room as you, or refuse to talk to you apart from saying, I'll see you in court, treat each other as if you were dead, then see, small family irreconcilable differences are not small things. So, you know, so this talk isn't about Brad and Angelina and their irreconcilable differences, and, and the airtime it is. But actually, I want to talk about, you know, we're in church here, so you guess where I'm going, but there is an irreconcilable difference that, that we don't really stress about. It never makes the media, it's never uh, something that, that, that people say, well, this is a real worry here, or this is sad that we're not talking, or this is sad that we're enemies, or it's sad that we're separated. It's, no, one's, no one's worried about that, because uh, this irreconcilable difference is the irreconcilable difference between God and us. Paul's been talking about that, this irreconcilable difference. How are we going to get it sorted out? We've heard the answer, and Paul has unpacked the answer. And he says this, he says, uh, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Obviously, if we have peace with God, the implication is that we didn't have peace with God, that we were enemies with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access to God. We didn't used to speak to God, didn't want to, God, God had turned his face from us, it's in Isaiah. He said, I will not hear you. Your sins have separated us. I'm not interested. But you've, I've, I, you've, there's a separation. We were God's enemies. It says, while we were God's enemies, Andy read, we were reconciled him through the death of his son. So we're, we're the, this, this is the story that Paul's been painting, that we're the accused, think of a law court, we're the accused who've been let off, acquitted, justified, that's that word. We are enemies of God and now at peace. We were separated from God and now we've been brought together, that word reconciled. It's like a family joining together. So he's talking about that and he's got, he wants you to go, wow, isn't that amazing that God would do that? That we've lived like that, we've lived as hypocrites, we've lived as hedonists, and, and that yet, and we've, we've got no chance, but God, God would come and bring us together. Now it's interesting, when you talk about being, uh, God letting us off, or being, us being uh, justified, uh, acquitted, that God's made peace with us, I think most people would think, well yeah, actually, of course he would. Of course God's going to, uh, uh, going to forgive us, going to let us off, because actually we're really quite good and nice. 
And actually, it's really God that's the problem. You know, this, this breakdown in relationship is really not, it's a little bit to do with us. Okay, we might, we might do a few bad things occasionally. But it's really God who's got a problem. It's really God who's pernicious and angry and grumpy. It's God who's got a problem. That's why, you know, so when you read the word wrath in there, in that thing, you think, whoa, that's a scary word. God's righteous judgment. You think, yeah, I know God's got a problem. And we try to say, well, of course God would let us off because actually the problem is not on our side. This falling out, this irreconcilable difference, the problem's not on our side. It's definitely on his side. Here's Stephen Fryer, self-appointed uh, cultural statement. Quite a funny guy, bright guy. This is what he said on an Irish TV program. He says, the guy, the interviewer said, <clears throat> what would you say to God if you met him face to face? He says this, God, how dare you create a world in where there's such misery that's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates the world which is so full of injustice and pain? The God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is clearly utterly manic, totally selfish. We have to spend our lives on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? It's perfectly apparent that he's monstrous, utterly monstrous and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, life becomes much simpler, purer, cleaner, much more worth living, in my opinion. There's a reconcilable difference, and Stephen Fry is really clear who's the problem. He's really clear that the problem's God. He's mean and monstrous and ugly and avicious, and it's not us. You look at the world and it's his fault. You look at Aleppo and it's his fault. You look at divorce and it's his fault. You look at crime and violence. You look at pain and suffering and arthritis in our hips and it's God's fault. Paul says, let's just bring on someone here just to get their balance in this statement here. So he brings Adam. Adam, if you don't know, is not the cool guy who plays the bass each week. Uh, but the, um, he's the first, is it first human. Adam, the first human, Eve, the first woman. You might say, oh, I don't believe in all that. Just interestingly, all of us have the same energy cells, mitochondria in our cells that all descend from one woman. Just throw that out there, just in case you're thinking, no, I don't do Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. Adam's the first human. His name means man. Mankind. Humanity. He stands for us. So he's not just giving testimony on his own account. He's going to talk about, well, what did you do? Let's bring him in. Let's hear what he's got to say. But actually, when he talks, when, when, when he's questioned by the court, actually what he's got to say, he, he says for all of us. So Paul says, come on, let's get the evidence. <clears throat> he says, sin entered the world through the one man, Adam. That was that moment. You might think it's trivial or not important. It's all about eating fruit when you shouldn't. As if God's like, really, I'll just set this little silly game for them. See if they like apples. Oh, gotcha. Right, I'm going to burn you in hell forever. No, no. In that moment, we heard it last week, they decided that God was not to be trusted, that God was really bad, that he was holding out the best things for them, that they could decide quite well on their own how life should be. They reached out for autonomy from God. They said, the temptation is you'll be like God. And we said, thank you very much. In fact, we'd quite like to judge you, God. You're mean and capricious and stupid and, you know, we'd quite like to make that opinion. Yeah, let's do it. Adam does it. So through, sin entered the world through the one man, Adam, and death came through sin. The lie was, you're not going to die. 
and they didn't die straight away. And they thought, hey, you can do it, you can sin, and nothing's going to happen. But death did come. Death did come to the whole world. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Adam's our representative. He's, he's mankind. He speaks for all of us. So he did it, and we all do it. We're all the same. We're all sinners by birth, by, by choice, by habitual choice. You're the same. You say, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that, what Adam did. If I'd have walked with God in the garden, I would have never done that. If I'd have been around Jesus at the time of his life, I'd have never shouted, crucify him. We're so different from the rest of humanity, aren't we, in here? So right and so pure, but no, we've all sinned. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. This is the reason why he talks about Moses, because he's talking about the law, and Brian did, spoke about that last week. Even over those who did not break uh, sin by breaking a command, as Adam did. Many died by the law breaking of the one man. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. One trespass, Adam's sin, resulted in condemnation for all people. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. The law was brought in so that law-breaking might increase. So sin reigned in death. Why is the world broken and busted? Why is the world a mess? Why is the world awful and pain and sorrow and suffering? Because we've invited it in. Paul says, uh, questioning Adam, he says, death entered through sin. We open the door to sin. I will do what I want. I'll suppress the truth of God. We heard about that. And coming in through the door, so we let in this one person. We say, well, you just come on in because we'd quite like to do our own thing and have our own fun and whatever. And then bursting in the door comes a gang of hooligans. <laughs> Misery and suffering and pain and death they all burst in into the good world. Adam and Eve say, oh, what have I done? They feel shame and sorrow. They hide from God, separated from God. Don't want, to be here, don't want to be near him. God says, you know what you've done? You've brought death into the world. You've brought death and suffering into the world. I can't be with you if you don't want to be with me. And they're exiled, sent away. The verdict of the court and the trumped-up countercharge that God is to blame, we said, is recorded in Romans 2, 4. Let God be true, and every person be a liar. It's a lie to say the world is full of suffering and death because God made it that way. No, we've invited them in. Sorry, Stephen, Fry. Sorry, Adam. Sorry, humanity. It's you. It's all of us. We are all utterly, utterly evil, capricious, mean-minded, stupid and full of injustice, inflicting pain. It's we who are manic and totally selfish. It's perfectly apparent to me, because I know myself, that I am utterly monstrous in my thoughts and words and deeds. It's our unfaithfulness that banished God from this good world. It's our unfaithfulness that has caused this divorce, this fractured relationship. When we fractured relationship with God, the world cracked. And we can see it, we can walk over the cracks in our world. So if it's us, how do we stand acquitted? How, how, how do we get off? We're justified, we're, we're, we have peace with God, we have access to God. What's going on here? You know the answer if you've been around church at all. Is it God, that dropped, is it God dropped the charges? I'll just let them off. I'll just let them off. 
No, in Romans 3 it says, let God be just and the justifier. He's not just letting us off. He's, I mean, how would you feel if someone had broken into your house? Let's be extreme and shock you and raped your wife, murdered your children, stolen your stuff. They come before the court and the judge says, well, I'm in a good mood today. I think we'll just let them off. You'd say, how? what? Where's justice? Where's justice? But we are those that have broken in and destroyed God's good world. We stand before the court and God lets us off. How can that be justice? How can that be a good thing to do? But he's the just and the justifier. He's doing both bits. God, the righteous and just God, has done what we couldn't do, what we were powerless to do, what we were not interested in doing. He's made a way to end the irreconcilable difference between us, between the two of us. How's he done that? I don't know if you've ever been involved in a family breakup, but what they do in, in, when there's a break in relationships, they, 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 they call for a mediator. In fact, one of our trustees is a mediator. He's not a mediator in family law. He's a mediator in corporate disputes. Actually, society, if it's aware, has longed for this mediator, someone who's going to reconcile us, somebody who's going to bring us together for this broken relationship. Who's going to do that? In fact, Job, which is one of the first bits of writing in the Old Testament, although it's not there first in the book, it's probably one of the oldest bits of writing in the Old Testament. He says this in Job 9.32. He says, God is not a mere mortal like me, that I may answer him, that I might confront each other in court. God, you've done that, I've done that. No, God is this mighty God. You think, well, I can't. I can't confront him in court. Actually, I know I'm guilty. I know I'm a sinner. How can I talk to God? If only, he says, there was someone to mediate between us, to lay his hand on both of us, to bring us together. Someone to remove the rod of God's judgment from me. He's he's saying that there needs to be someone who's going to come here and, and sort it all out. And Jesus is the only mediator who's qualified. Because is he a human? Yes. He's one of us. He's part of Adam's race in that sense. Part of Adam's team. But he's also part of God's team. He can speak for both. He's God made man, the one who can mediate between the two, who can bring the two irreconciled parties together. But actually, we have not asked for this media, even though Job kind of reaches for him. We haven't asked for him. We're not really that interested in getting sorted out. We're just kind of pushing it in the background. It's God who's set Jesus as a mediator. It's God who said, I don't want this. Even though I'm the wronged party, even though they've, they've, they've called me a liar, even though they've said my world is bad and I've made it good, even though I've made the world beautiful and they've busted it, I don't want it to be like this. I want a solution. I I want, like a father, to bring my kids back home. He sends Jesus. What's the solution? What's the solution? Paul puts it like this in our passage. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will somebody die for a righteous person. 
though for a good person someone might be prepared to die. He's actually saying at the first, well, Jesus died, but actually he didn't die for you because you were, had some qualifications that made you kind of like worth dying for. Yeah, I can see some good in you. Okay, I'll die for you. He said, no, 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 no. He says, while we were still sinners. Verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own, say it, love. Is it up there? Yes, love. God demonstrates his own love for us. Don't blame him. Stephen Fry, I don't know which God you're rejecting, but it's not the one I know. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, we weren't interested in God. Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified, acquitted by the court, by his blood, how much more shall we saved from God's just and righteous anger, his wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we've received reconciliation. One of the best stories in the Bible is the prodigal son, isn't it? He's gone off to a far-off country, and he comes to his senses and says, I'm coming home. And the father's looking out for him, runs to him. That makes us look far too good. So we were not in a far-off country thinking, I might return to Jesus. We were not interested. We're enemies with God. But God not only has come looking out for us, he's come seeking and saving the lost. He's come, as Jesus said, he's coming to find us. He's coming to bring us home. He's coming to make it right. He's coming to wrap his arms around us and say, You're, I love you. He's coming to die in our place so that we can have peace with God. And Paul says, if you want to boast, Romans, I know you like to boast in your, in your battles, in your victories, in your architecture. I know you like to boast in that. If you want to boast, don't boast in that. Jews, I know you like to boast in your law-keeping and your good behavior. Don't boast in that. Boast in this, that God has come, that Jesus has come and brought us home. That is something to boast about. Paul wants us to grasp the enormity of what Paul has done. And, 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 I, and I think we need to understand that he's done this kind of team... Man United, see what I did there? Adam United, Man United, there's a, a clip of Adam just being created out of, the, uh, out of the dirt of the earth. It was a hard picture to get, but we managed to find it. Uh, and there's the other one, Jesus United. Transfer deadline day, you are in Man United. I'm going to enjoy this little bit here. Incapable of victory. Facing relegation. The slow, corrupt, lingering... Death. Impossible. You're in Man United. And you're stuck there. What the team does, you do. Beaten again. This would be great, wouldn't it? Beaten again. Relegated. Disappeared. Corruption. Actually, it's more like Leeds United, isn't it? But I really couldn't go there. <laughs> we can't win. We're corrupt. Oh, man. Anyway. But actually, we, 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 you're in that team. And now, transfer deadline day, just at the right time, you're transferred into Team Jesus. You're the same loser you were before. You're transferred into Team Jesus. And you know, it's like when I used to play football with a good team, they would score the goals and win, and at the end, man, I'm great. (laughs) I remember one time a friend of mine said, I don't think you touched the ball once, you just kind of ran around. (laughs) That's what I'm doing my best. And we won like 5-0, it's church football, it's easy to win church football. Uh, (laughs) And uh, 
And, and, but that's what it's like. Jesus has won the victory. He's in goal, saving. You know, sorry, let's not stretch the metaphor too far. He's scoring the winning goal. He's, he's the victor, the champion. And then at the end, they get you. And they carry you off and say, you're amazing. That's what Jesus is saying. You've been transferred from team Adam, from man united, to Jesus united. So Paul puts it in Romans 5, our verses, and we're going to just help. It's almost like he doesn't want to mention the, the captain of team Adam. He mentions him once, but he doesn't mention him again. So we're going to put him back in so we know which team we're talking about. But he loves to mention, Paul loves to mention the captain of team Jesus, so he mentions him all the time. But he also doesn't really make out what Jesus has done. He just calls it the gift and the trespass. So when he's talking about the trespass, he's talking about what Adam did in rejecting God and inviting sin into the world. And the gift is when Jesus Christ has come and died for us. So let's read it together. So read my brackets as well, yeah? Can you do that? Okay, if I read, (laughs) you will all go slower and I'll look stupid, so I want you to grab hold of it and run with it, okay? So I'll start you off. But the gift... For those of you listening on the podcast, the congregation then read the slides but didn't really keep together. So this is what they said. But the gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift of Jesus that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God, Jesus, be compared with the result of one man, Adam's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift of Jesus followed many trespasses of Adam and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass of Adam resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act of Jesus Christ resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. You did good. It would have been a disaster if I had read as well, because this team's going quicker than this team. No, we're all on the same, same team. So this is what he's... This is what he's describing, and he's going to unpack this later in the letter. He's saying, you've been transferred from that team that was busted. The the, the trespass of your captain has caused the whole team to fall. The trespass has called you all to be busted. Relegation, death, despair, bankruptcy, Man United. Jesus United. One brilliant act of skill. Actually, one act of self-sacrifice on the cross has brought... Victory to everyone. Peace and justification has brought life to everyone. Paul's so excited about it, he just contrast after contrast, contrast after contrast, because he's so excited about it because he wants you to get it. So this is really important that you understand that. That actually, uh, and I prayed it this morning, maybe it's because it's in my head, that I th- we're not just spectators in this drama, we're participators in it. We're united with him. It, it's a bit like when Paul... Uh, I mean, this, this is a bit of a cheat, but I'll go with it anyway. Paul doesn't call himself a Christian. He calls himself as a man in Christ. It's almost like he imagines himself as tucked away inside a, a Russian doll. It's the nativity Russian doll set. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, more, more parties involved. But if you imagine here what's going on, we are 
Read, read John 17 if you want to play with this. We are hidden in Christ. We're inside Him. A bit like when Adam, not Adam the first Adam, but Adam the bass player, preached about uh, Jacob and Esau. He says, uh, es- Jacob kind of dressed himself in Esau's clothes and got God's blessing. God, Paul sees himself as inside. He was in Adam's, that Russian doll. He's come out of there. He's put himself, he's in Christ. Jesus, God has put himself in Christ. Christ is in God. It's like he's hidden in there. So the amazing thing is what's true about Jesus becomes true for you. What's true about Jesus becomes true for you. Because So Jesus has died. You've died. He says it elsewhere in the letter. You've, you were crucified with Christ. I wasn't there. No, you're inside the doll. You're inside Christ. Counted as in there. When Jesus lived a perfect life, you lived a perfect life. Well, I think I didn't live a perfect life. I'm just busted. You know, I've just been told that. No, no. His perfect life, your perfect life. His eternal life, his resurrection, your eternal life. His sonship, your sonship. That's brilliant. You didn't do anything. You just got transferred. He even paid the price. You transferred. You're in. How do you know? How do you know you're in? Oh, let's quote Colossians while we're there. For you, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. How do you know you're in? Paul says that you've received the Holy Spirit. He says earlier, uh, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given us. Now, depending on your background, you might think, Holy Spirit, that sounds spooky. Or you might think, Holy Spirit. Yeah, I remember at one, I was at this conference and, a, and like the Spirit of God came on me and I fell on the ground. Or you might think, when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came on me. But it's not just a little box of, oh, did you get the Holy Spirit tick? Yeah, something happened at Soul Survivor. Or, well, I became a Christian, so I must have the Holy Spirit tick. Now, what he's saying is, you live forever under the cascade of God's love. It's like you stand under the big waterfall of God's love that just flows and flows and flows. I don't know if you've ever been brave enough. There's a, a waterfall in Yorkshire that you can stand under. And I used to, with my friends, just go and stand under. So I knock you down into the plunge pool. Sorry, geography. Uh, but it's not just a, a kind of a theory. You're standing under the waterfall. It's like the flow, the flow. God, I love you. 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 I give you myself. I give you myself. I give you myself. That's the flow of God's waterfall. Why do you get to stand there? Because Jesus has stood there through all eternity. When Jesus is baptized, the Father can't help but be excited and say, this is my beloved Son, I'm well pleased. But he's done that for all eternity. He said, I've poured out my love in him. I love, this is the Son I love, and I'm giving him myself by my Spirit again and again. That's what they're doing. And the Son says, this is the Father and I delight, and I'm giving him myself by the Spirit. That's what God has been doing for all eternity. And you get to stand in there, almost under that waterfall of the Father's love to Jesus. You just get to stand there. That's how you know. Paul's going to tell us later on in Romans 8, that's how you know. The Spirit of God's in you. saying he's my daddy. Let's land it, though, with a final thought. And I've not done it in the order of Paul, so you can smack my hand and say, you didn't do it in the right order. But I thought this was the one I could punch it home. 
Paul says, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing what God has done? You've done nothing. You've received it for free. It's absolutely fantastic. You're in team Jesus now and you're loved like Jesus. You're, you're counted as righteous like Jesus. Isn't it amazing? And he says, now, you've got this hope of the future. There's a future glory coming where you're going to see Jesus face to face. We were separated. Man couldn't look on God and, and die. But he, if he looked on God, he would die. But now we can look on God and see him face to face says, when we see him, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. We'll see him face to face. We've got that future hope of glory that no one can take away. Because we never earned it. We never did it. We're never trying our best to be good or stop doing this or that. But Jesus just transferred us into his team. So it says, Paul says this in verse Romans 5.2. We'll finish with these little reflections. It says, and we boast in the hope that's future certainty. Not like maybe. It's not like... British hope, fingers crossed. I hope the UK do. Uh, obviously, we did okay in the athletics. About that, I hope England do okay in the Euros. That kind of hope. No, this kind of this certain hope. We burst in the boast in the certain hope of the glory of God. And then he says, now, now, just just think about your lives. He says, not only so, but we also boast or glory in our sufferings. Paul, what's the matter with you? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We're going to keep going. Perseverance produces godly character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given us. Paul's aim wasn't suffering. You're in Team Man United. You lose, you lose, you lose, you lose. But no one cares. You're in Team Jesus and the world does not like it. It wants to give you a hard time. These people that Paul's writing to in Rome were about to be persecuted by Nero, thrown into the arena. But Paul says, not that we want suffering, we're not masochists, but he says we've got joy in our sufferings. Why? Because we know we're on Team Jesus and our future's certain. So when suffering comes and hardship comes, they say, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm not ducking out. I'm going to persevere. Wow, that perseverance produces a character, godly character. Sitting on your sofa, watching the Ryder Cup, does not produce godly character. It might produce joy for the Americans later on today, but it's not going to produce godly character. Being in the world and facing the world and living in the world produces character. And that character makes you full of hope because God has poured out his love in my I've got the spirit of God in me, I can face the world. Comfort doesn't produce... Perseverance and character, it produces quitters and moaners and visionless and lazy and faithless Christians. The biggest enemy in the West is not persecution, but comfort. How does Jesus say, if you're in this team, what's, how do we play? Jesus says, well, come on and die with me. Whoa, didn't sign for that. I thought you'd just bless me and fill my bank account and make me healthy and happy and wealthy. I didn't sign to die. But Paul says, look, just Jesus has transferred you into this team. And you know how we play? Self-sacrifice. Denial. Take up our cross. That's how we play. That's how we're going to win. The world thinks comfort and ease and wealth are going to win. Never. But this team, self-sacrifice. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be on my team, if anyone wants to be in Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to read this quote. This is by a guy called Howard Guinness. You never find anybody cool called Howard. 
So I thought, well, just for that reason alone, it needs to be in here. 1989, he's talking to a bunch of young people. Uh, they were a group in America called the Young Lifers. So where's Abby? Yeah, she was a young lifer. It's kind of like this radical youth movement in the States. And he's talking to them. <clears throat> it's up here. I'll try and read it well and do it justice. It says, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheaply and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are His lovers, those who love Him, and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comforts or very life? Where are those who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross and bear it with him, or willing to be nailed to it in a college or office or home or mission field, or willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer, to die on it? Where are the men and women of vision today? Where are those of enduring vision? Those who have seen the King in his beauty and henceforth count all else but refuse that they might possess him, that they might win him? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers of God who count one soul of greater value than the rise and fall of empires? Where are the men of glory? Glory in God-sent loneliness, in difficulties, in persecutions, in misunderstandings, in discipline, in sacrifice, in death. Where are the men and women who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men and women of prayer? Where are those like the psalmist of old who count God's word more important than to them than daily food. Where are the men and women who, like Moses, commune with God face to face as a man talks to his friend? Those who must unmistakably bear with them the fragrance of meeting God day after day. Where are God's men and God's women for this day of God's power? Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint. God has poured out his love in our lives, transferred us from the kingdom of death into the kingdom and the team of his dear son. I want to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to ask you to put your hands up. People might pray, they might not. We're not going to do anything to embarrass you. And then we're going to break bread thinking what we're doing. So just close your eyes with me. Van might start to play. Just close your eyes with me. Paul wants us to be absolutely amazed and wowed by this amazing love. We're going to probably sing it in a moment. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So he was God's people, hidden in Christ, Whatever your week has been like, whatever your life has been like, you get to stand now under the waterfall of God's love. You get to stand where Jesus has stood through all eternity, loved and delighted by his Father. Just reach out your hands with me or in your spirit if you don't want to do it physically. And just say, God, pour your love on me. If you're feeling, I need that, just raise your hand up. 
not to me or to anyone I'm not looking, but raise it up to Jesus and say, God, pour your love in my life. If you know you're really on Team United, Man United, dead, failing, Adam's team, right now at the proper time, this transfer day, he's come and sought you, not because you're particularly skillful, but he wants you on his team. He wants to transfer you to glory and blessing and love and goodness. He wants you to stand on the pitch and to feel the adulation of heaven. The voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Let's stand there, people. Pour your love on us, Lord. Pour your love on us by your spirit again and again. Fill us afresh, O oh God. Not because we're ticking the box, but because we say that's where you stood, Jesus. And that's where we're going to stand. Loved by the Father. Not a hint of disappointment. You love us, Jesus. Pour your love on us. But also, as we come and break bread, you're not just having a little bit of a bite of bread. You're saying, this is my team. This is my team, the body broken team. The bloodshed team. The cross-shaped team. The one who denies himself and says, I'm going to live like you, Jesus. You come in and saying, that's the team I'm on. You come in and take in his body and saying, an end to ease and comfort. I will be that man of vision and passion. I will be that woman of prayer. I will be that radical, that adventurer, that pioneer that counts God's kingdom as God's purpose and God's, the life of others is more important than the rise and fall of empires. That's what you come in, you're saying, I'm participating in this team. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus is saying to you, come on, transfer deadline day, come and take and eat and join us. So let's not break bread and just think, this is what we do. But let's think, this is what he's done. And we're joining with him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.